Hi, welcome to the Business Class ESL Breakroom. We're a company of passionate language trainers and coaches. We're here to share ideas, to improve our skills, and strengthen the training community. Come in for some inspiration, leave with tips to apply to your sessions today. Hi, and welcome to the ESL Breakroom Podcast. Today's episode has us talking with Dr. Martin Bloomfield. If you find him on LinkedIn, you'll see he's a relentless optimist. He's also a trainer and consultant in neurodiversity from an international and intercultural perspective. So what that all means, Martin is going to break it down for us. But what you need to know is he is a trainer like us. He's got experience training adults in many topics, and he is going to bring his perspective on the current um, discussion on neurodiversity, neurodivergence to the table and how we can also help our learners um, approach our learners who deal with these kind of issues. So Martin, welcome. We're delighted to have you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Sunny morning here in England, and it's just really nice to be here. Excellent. Well, we're glad you're here. So we just started a great conversation off camera. We hope we can uh, bring it back uh, to the board. Replicate it word by word. <laughs> it was great. Um, no, believe me. So you, you have an interesting take. We started talking about actually neurodivergence and empathy and inclusivity. Uh, would you mind sharing with us how you see these topics, which are kind of very much on the forefront of everyone's mind? Yeah, yeah. So I do uh, a lot of work in um, what they call diversity and, and inclusion. And I was discussing the issue recently with somebody explaining that diversity and inclusion, first of all, they're categorically different things. So diversity essentially is a description of what, what, what is around us and inclusion is um, the act of what we do about that. So diversity is, you know, there are, there are people from this background, this background, this background, and inclusion is how we behave. But in one way, diversity and inclusion are opposites because diversity by its very nature talks about differences. It talks mm -hmm. about there's this category of, per of person, this category of person, this category of person. Inclusion, to be true inclusion, has to stop othering people. It has to stop mm. looking at people as different. And so diversity looks at people as different and inclusion, it, its beautiful goal is to not look at other people as different. Mm. One of the ways of, of, of doing that is to see them as individuals. Um, this also helps us be inclusive because one of the great keywords you'll hear a lot these days is empathy. Mm. And, I, I see an awful lot online, on LinkedIn, on social media, about how to be empathic or empathetic, um, about the, 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 the ways of, of, of doing empathy and going about empathy, as though empathy is a, a skill set or a, a set of behaviours. Um, but it's not. Uh, empathy isn't that at all. Um, mm. If anything, empathy is what you might call an emotional disposition. Hmm. So there's some work on mirror neurons that a lot of people are doing. Now, th there's no settled science behind this, but there's an awful lot of evidence for it, that we all have mirror neurons in our brains. And what basically happens is when we get to know somebody uh, and that person feels some emotion or other, we feel that same emotion. So a very, a very simple example of this is that if you're in love, uh, and, and you may be in love, you may not be, but if you're in love and deeply in love, 
and the person you're in love with feels sad, you feel sad as well. And it's not a different sadness. You're sharing a sadness. Um, that person who loves you, you love that person. It's not a different love you're going through. You're sharing a love. And mm -hmm. this is where empathy essentially arises. And the best way to cultivate empathy is to get to know people, especially know them on a, on a, on a relatively deep way. And the best way to do that is to get to know them as individuals. And so instead of trying to categorize lots of people as dyslexic and dyspraxic and dyscalculic and, and autistic and, and ADHD, it's good to understand this, mm. but it's better to know them as human beings. Mm. That's beautiful. Yeah. And that frees us up to just, yeah, connect with yeah. who is in front of us in our training session, for example. Just, yeah. 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 And, and, and what it does, I mean, it, it, on the one hand, it makes it simple, but on the other hand, it makes it difficult. So if we want to train people in, in true neurodiversity understanding, dyslexia awareness, for instance, mm -hmm. Um, ultimately, it's, it's about cultivating our interpersonal skills, mm. cultivating our love for, for those who are around us. Yeah. Um, and that's a very simple thing to do. On the other hand, for some people, it might be quite tricky. And mm. so there are things that we can do and ways that we can go about um, essentially um, creating an environment where this can happen. Yeah, as our work as trainers is very multidimensional. There's a whole element of this psychologic, psychologic or the self-development. We need to be kind of aware of ourselves. Yeah. It's yeah. not just popping into a room and saying, hi, guys, here we go. We're going to help you work on your English. It's Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is why I love the job. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. but... <laughs> if it was just helping people work on English, you know, it's okay. This is how you form the present perfect. Piece of cake, really, isn't it? Now go away and do it. Right. That, would be, that would be great. That's true. But we're dealing with many different dimensions. And so, yeah, what, yeah. what could be some well, of those ways you might recommend to well, help One of the dimensions that we're dealing with is something that most people with dyslexia um, and most autistic people uh, experience. And it's something called learned helplessness. You've probably heard of learned helplessness. Yeah. And in 1967 or 68, Seligman. Um, came up with the concept. And, and the idea of learned helplessness is that people have been taught or they have learned through years and years of education that education is not for them, that learning is not for them. Mm. Um, and, that, uh, and that when we go into a learning environment, and we, we, we attempt to teach people, not everybody starts from the same place and not everybody has the same attitude towards learning. Um, and so as soon as we detect learned helplessness, and you can see it easily, as soon as we detect learned helplessness, that's where we have to start. We have to start helping people find a love of learning and get rid of the fear of learning as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, here, here's a very simple example. I, I, my German is pretty poor uh, and, and I've got a, a German tutor and she's lovely, absolutely lovely. But there are times when I find myself sitting in, in the, the cafe with her, sort of looking at her, her sort of tablet, just thinking, what am I doing here? I don't deserve to be doing this. I'll never get better. And that's really tricky. Um, and, and, and here I am saying, oh, I can't learn. I'll never get better. I mean, I've got a PhD. I'm not massively clever, but you know, the fact is that it proves that I can learn. And yet still deep within me is this 
this lack of confidence that I'm able to learn or that learning is for me. And so we can't simply judge people's ability to learn by where they are in life because we don't know what lays behind them. Yeah. And so let's put turn the tables on your German tutor. Now, what could she do? What could she say to you? How can she recognize? Because this may be going on in your head, mm, thoughts, mm. this internal dialogue. What does it look like to her so that she can recognize and say, ah, oh, wait, I better step in here and see what I can do? It was really funny. She, uh, she made a comment recently because she knows I'm dyslexic. We've discussed it. Yeah. Um, even though dyslexia is difficult to pronounce in German. <laughs> <laughs> and for anybody who speaks German, you'll know what I mean. There is a word like legasteni, which, which means dyslexia. And that's not too difficult to pronounce. But the word that most, is, most Germans use is, is a um, leserrechtschweibschweiker. Oh, what was it? Um, yeah, leserrechtschweibschweiker, which is just this horrendous. I don't know how many sort of. <laughs> Sort of a umlaut. It's got all of them in there, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I know German. So. But we, we, we know, um, we, she knows that I'm dyslexic. And yeah. at one point, she said, oh, that's classic dyslexia. And I sort of smiled and went, maybe. Um, she, we were doing a quiz. And, uh, 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 and it was a multiple choice quiz. And mm -hmm. I failed to see, or I didn't see the difference between two words that had the, um, the, the, had the, the, the vowels reversed in the middle of them. And one of them was correct and the other one wasn't. Mm. And I thought, yeah, fair enough. That, that, that's, you know, a very strong sign of dyslexia. Actually, she'd been missing signs of dyslexia the entire day and hadn't, hadn't realized. One of which, for instance, was she'd explained a grammar rule on one page of her iPad, then swiped to the next page and expected me to apply that grammar rule. And there's something that we talk about called working memory. Uh, dyslexics have very poor working memory. As soon as she swiped to the next page, that rule was gone. And then I was expected to excavate it, carry it over and apply it. Mm. Now, working memory is that ability to, to hear something usually and then put it in your brain, carry it somewhere, put it somewhere else and apply it. Um, and it can it can manifest in really basic places such as if you put things on a, on a whiteboard and expect people to copy those things down, that's putting pressure on working memory. And so all sorts of things that we do put pressure on the kinds of, um, the kinds of challenges that people with dyslexia have. Okay, so that would mean if I'm explaining something that's new or really rusty for someone because they probably learned it 20 years prior, they need to see it again and we need to keep it in front of them visually for yes. the next part, which is an application exercise. Absolutely. And we need okay. to show the connections between what we've taught them and, the, and, and the, the questions and answers. So maybe here's the rule and here's where this part of the rule applies to this particular question. And you can see the arrow and let people do that. Let okay. people see that, that connection. Another way of doing it is not to teach in terms of rule-based teaching at all. Mm. Teach in a constructivist way, for instance, by helping people understand their own rules even if those rules aren't the ones that you would have them understand, mm -hmm. it's better than confusing people with rules that they'll never learn. So either keep things in front of them with visuals or teach constructively. constructively. Right. So you mean like apply a coaching approach, which you know I'm a yeah. coach as well, a neural language coach. I've done the training. And so the idea is you ask them what they know about the topic first yeah. and let them bring it out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ask Excellent. Them what they know 
help them work out their own patterns. Because all, all, all grammar is, let's be honest, all grammar is, is a series of patterns that, that, that grammarians have noticed over the years and, mm. and formalized. That's what grammar is, certainly in English. Uh, and, and so there is no particular reason that one particular pattern is somehow set in stone. So mm. if we can help people find patterns themselves, that's usually better than telling them what my patterns are and that they have to remember them and then apply them to something else. Yeah, excellent. This is very helpful. Thank you. Um, and so my next question, I guess, would have been, what, what are some other signs then? You said she missed several all day long. You know, what are some other things that we, we might not realize? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as simple as, uh, we've had this in the past, actually. Um, I have no understanding of time and space. Absolutely not. It's 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 almost comical. I don't know my left from my right. Um, I don't know what day of the week it is. Um, I'm I'm ashamed to say that um, I missed my brother's birthday last weekend because I didn't know what when his birthday was, and he told me, and I I I, I mm. got the dates wrong in my mind. Um, it's it, it's horrible. And so things like this, my 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 poor understanding of time and space, time and place, um, is 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 it's something that comes through quite a lot. So there's the learned helplessness, there's mm. poor understanding of time and space that she'd missed, there's working memory that she'd missed, uh, and, and also something that she wouldn't have known about, which is that there is an emotional sensitivity around learning that I, I, I have. Mm. Learning has always been traumatic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, um, and, and I feel Entering any learning environment is a difficult thing for me. It just mm. is because I, I, I'm, I'm setting myself up for failure in my own mind and no one likes to think of themselves as a failure. And I'm yeah. putting myself in an environment where traditionally I failed and, and I failed in the formative years of my life. Mm. And, and, and those are the ones that count. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter what you do when you're an adult, when you're a young child, when you're failing as a young child, that sticks with you. Yeah. <laughs> really sticks with you um so that's 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 something and and oh by the way i'm reading stuff badly off the page all day long as well that she just didn't quite pick up on but yeah these these things so that's two there are two things there i wanted to pick up on so the you're going in already feeling stressed perhaps because it's learning situation yet i know you probably i'm assuming maybe you don't want to be talked not talked down to or treated special or Mm -hmm. how can trainer approach somebody in a way what would you suggest that would make you feel comfortable or a learner well the first thing to understand and this is this is something which there have been studies on um is that people with dyslexia that they we feel with emotionally we're more sensitive than Mm -hmm. than non-dyslexics and there's been a number of studies to, to show that. I mean, a, a woman called Beverly Sturm or Sturm or somebody, um, I, I wouldn't know how to pronounce it by, by reading it, but S-T-U-R-N. Um, mm-hmm. And a few other people did some studies on, on emotional sensitivity and dyslexia. They, they wired dyslexics and non-dyslexics up and showed them emotional stimuli. And, and the dyslexics always came out as noticeably more emotionally sensitive. They react, they had stronger reactions. So mm-hmm. the first thing to see is that dyslexics generally have stronger emotional reactions to stimuli. 
The second thing is that we begin from a position where we have this, this negative feeling about learning. Mm. Um, the third thing is if we're in a group, and certainly you've got hierarchies in a group, people are a little bit sensitive, uh, sensitive about maybe looking foolish in front, mm. of, in front of other members of the group. And then the next thing is um, one of the standout features of dyslexia is something called executive function. Mm. And to just for, for those who don't know executive function, I, I, I like to describe it as most people have a, a personal assistant or a secretary living inside them. And those of us with dyslexia, that secretary is on lunch break, basically. <laughs> and and, and we, we don't have that, that help. And so we get times wrong. We get dates wrong. We, we, we find task initiation difficult. We find switching from one task to another difficult. We find prioritizing things difficult. We find putting things in order difficult. And one of the other aspects of, of executive function is emotional regulation. Mm. And emotional regulation is harder. And what this means is you've got this perfect storm of a background of traumatic learning, mm. hypersensitivity, and an inability to, regu to regulate the emotions that we feel once we're, sen once we're sensitive. So the first thing, again, is to get the environment right. It's the environment, it's the attitudes, it's the understanding of who people are and their strengths and their challenges or the strengths mm. and their weaknesses, let's say, because we all mm. have them. And basically to, to, to form a non-judgmental non culture. And this is one of the things a lot of, a lot of um, if we're talking about language teachers, there's a lot of work on culture. And mm. one of the things that we, we, we talk about with culture is how to create a culture and how to, to to allow this culture to be organic and what kind of culture do we want yeah. and so this this is very very important this is fabulous i mean this is one thing i like to say to everybody anyway that we are in a no judgment zone you know we're not in school anymore we are here to make mistakes this yeah. is what this is about and yet and yet still we all have this mm. when you're at school i mean i remember when i was at school and i'd received my grades mm. and they were judgments yeah. All of these 20%, 19% that I was getting, they were, they were judgments. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if someone says these aren't judgments. They are. Yeah. We know they're judgments because they are a judgment of how little we have learned or how much we have learned. Or, and we know that other people are getting 16, 65, 70%, and we're getting 20, 25%. And this feels like a judgment. And that's, yeah. that's hard. That's hard. Um, another thing I do, by the way, is I... Apart from the, because it all sounds a little bit wishy-washy, the positive environment and, 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 mm -hmm. and stuff. And by the way, the, it's not so wishy-washy. There's a lot of research behind this. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say up to 15 years of research that was synthesized uh, about five years ago. Mm -hmm. It shows that even the language we use about dyslexia affects the learning outcomes of dyslexics. So one of the, uh, the things that I, I do when I begin a dyslexia training course um, not the only thing, but one of the things I, I like to do is just ask people, I give them post-it notes or, or something, and ask them to write down on each post-it note one thing they associate with dyslexia. Uh, and then on another post-it note, another one thing they associate with dyslexia. And then another, on another post-it note, another one thing they associate with dyslexia. And I give them about five minutes to do this. And then later on, what we'll do is we'll, I'll, 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 be, I'll be harsh and I'll, I'll create a cartoonish world of black and white that doesn't really exist. But I say, okay, on this side of the, uh, of the wall, 
all the positive things you wrote, stick, stick them on that wall. And on that side of the wall, all the negative things you wrote, stick them on that wall. And it wouldn't surprise anybody how many mm. negative things there are and how few positive things there are. Yeah. And the negative things all come out with things like difficulties in or trouble doing or can't do this or does this slowly or, or mistakes this. Now, what this shows is this shows the attitudes that we have and the kinds of ways that we discuss dyslexia. Mm. And yet we know that if we discuss dyslexia as either some form of pathological problem or some form of medical or conditional problem, there's no cure for dyslexia. The symptoms are this that kind of thing. Or if we discuss dyslexia in terms of what we call learning difficulties. So mm. dyslexics find learning difficult. They read slowly. They have specific learning dif difference difficulties that dyslexics have poor handwriting. Dyslexics find this challenging. If we discuss dyslexia in those terms, then the research shows clearly that the dyslexics in the class have lower learning outcomes. If we discuss, discuss dyslexia in terms of differences, different manifestations of, 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 of cognitive processing, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, or if we discuss dyslexia in terms of, okay, so what accommodations can we give you? What would you like? Then dyslexics generally have higher learning outcomes. And I know it sounds wishy-washy when we do this, but actually it's really important that we get the language right and that we get the attitudes right. And that includes our own as teachers. We have um, we have hidden hidden attitudes yeah. towards towards dyslexia, and one of the ways of, of bringing them out is by just doing a little exercise like that, and then counting the positives and counting the negatives. Um, yeah. And even now, as as people are listening to this, are probably going, okay, right, dyslexics are creative, dyslexics are visual thinkers, but actually, people like me. It's my job to, to get this awareness out and to show that this isn't just being kind to people mm -hmm. who are otherwise, otherwise struggling. There is research behind this, empirical research, neurological research and anecdotal evidence that there is research behind the, 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 the high emotional, um, the, the high emotional empathy, if you like, if not the, if not the, the, sort of the emotional regulation, mm -hmm. um, visual thinking, the creativity, the high IQ. The, the, the high intelligence and different uh, intelligence scores. There's research behind this and you can see that it's true. It's just mm. that as, as teachers and trainers, it's, it's difficult for us to know because no one has told anybody. Right, right. It's so true. And here, okay, we're working in France. It's the educational system is quite strict here on very one perspective. Basically, and, and, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And in, and in France, I mean, as I said, so one of the things is if we look at dyslexia pathologically, if we look at it as a medical condition, then learning outcomes tend to be lower. And yet, how do you get tested for dyslexia in France? You go to the doctor. Mm. And, 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 and so already there is this, this, this almost unbreakable connection between dyslexia and the medical fraternity, between dyslexia and and, and, and it being a medical condition because you have to go to the doctor to get tested. My God. So the people that are coming and sitting in front of us, I know we have trainers around the world, but still in front of us here in France, they're already dealing with that Absolutely. label, heavy label. It's very Absolutely. It's a heavy, heavy label. And yeah. one of the things that I say we, we can do is we can start to, most teachers do this. Um, it's group work and differentiation as much as anything mm -hmm. else. 
it's trying to avoid literacy content. It's trying to, to one of the things that I, I like to do on LinkedIn is I try to, uh, and, and when I make presentations, is, is present information as visually as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, because that avoids any phonological processing problems that people with mm-hmm. dyslexia have. And by the way, there are ways of presenting um, information visually that are far better than other ways. So people may or may not have heard of something we call embedded imagery. Now, essentially, without going too deeply into it, embedded imagery is if you're trying to, to, to teach something, um, and it could be anything from, a, from a, as atomic, if you like, as phonemes and phoneme awareness mm-hmm. to something um, more all-encompassing like a, a concept or a theory so it doesn't matter what it is but if you're trying to teach it and you're trying to use visuals you need to make sure that the visuals are embedded in the message and the message is embedded in the visuals now what do i mean by that mm. well i think one example would be um one of the images that i i, I share um that i, I created on on uh, on, on Microsoft Paint or whatever it was. It was terrible, really bad with that kind of thing. But one of the images that I share is of a London underground map. And I, I said, okay, let's navigate dyslexia. So this, let's navigate what dyslexia is. And each of the lines on the underground map was a different aspect of dyslexia. And each of the stations was where they intersect and what mm. happens when, when they intersect. And I, I talked about this navigating what dyslexia is. And, and, and people understood because the navigation was there in the image. Mm. Um, so that the, 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 the image and the message were reticulated. They were the same thing. They were in the same, the same cognitive space in that respect. And that accesses something called the ventral pathways in the brain or the ventral pathway. I don't know if there's one or two, there's, there's debate. But it accesses the ventral pathways in the brain. And the ventral pathways are what they call the what pathways. That is, they help you understand and comprehend. Um, so very, very, very simply, um, if your ventral pathways are damaged, you don't understand facial expressions very well. Um, oh, so, right, yeah. right. So, so, so if you're like, if you can access the ventral pathways and you do that using imagery and embedded imagery, then people understand better. Another thing, and this is a really, and, and I'm sorry for sort of throwing stuff at you, but something that's really, really simple. If you want people to understand and, and, and build their vocabulary and you're teaching English, mm-hmm. the studies show quite clearly that dyslexics have a greater understanding of meaning through morphology than non-dyslexics. So the idea of, of, of prefix, root word, suffix, this understanding of how to build language when we can master the art of teaching that then we can access what dyslexics understand if you like and they understand meaning better than non-dyslexics through morphology also the the studies have shown that even with nonsense words with morphological understanding there is greater fluency and reading speed um, of dysle- for, for dyslexics with uh, uh, words that they understand morphologically so when you say morphological, you mean the bits of the word. So the, the bits of the word, the, building, the Lego the, building blocks of the words. So the D always means negative or the in or the yeah. M-E-N-T yeah. makes yeah. it a noun. Fabulous. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, isn't it strange that this in dyslexia is, is problem or bad or negative? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we are defined by something negative. You're making me think of so many points I want to 
play off of one is I did come across, I think, and it's one of the conferences you're you're going to speak at coming up. There was a this phrase, what's strong with you, which is a play on the what's wrong with you expression. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful. I think that can apply to all of us. If you can yeah. say, hey, what's strong with you? And yeah. even put that out as a um opening warmer question. Yeah. It, it's yeah. a fun one. And, and, and what an amazing thing, because there's so much teaching is deficit-based teaching. Yeah. And, and, yeah. yeah. And, and the very little teaching focuses on the positives. We all, in the back of our mind, focus on deficits. Yeah. And so also what you're talking about with the visual aspect makes me think of Emily Bryson and her drawing. Mm. And I'm sure you're aware of Emily and her great work in note, uh, sketch noting. How do you find that? Uh, in a in a learning situation for yeah so um when we do learning to learn um mm -hmm. sessions what we don't do is we don't do visual auditory kinesthetic that's all rubbish people don't think about those anymore but what one of the things to to do is is we can't just assume that people know how to do this mm. so it is a skill in itself and so there's a there's a meta thing going on that that if we want people to use this kind of technique in learning we have to be able to teach them how to do it uh, and and there you've got you've got your, your meta problem there but actually I, I think yeah I, I'm a big fan also of Darius Nandaman and his, his mind mapping okay. um, techniques yeah. um, a, a massive fan of, of constructivism um, I mean a, a great a great example of that is how do we teach prepositions now okay. There are lots of different ways of teaching prepositions. You know, I mean, there's the classic in, on, at. Mm -hmm. You know, where you got the the, the, the circle, the, the outer circle is in, the middle one is on, and the, the one right at the right at the heart is at, or, or the the pyramid where the bottom one is in, the middle one is on. That that kind of thing, where in is greater, on is slightly smaller, and at is is a lot smaller. It's that kind of thing, and you can visualize that kind of thing. But um, a lot of the time, prepositions can't be taught like that. So what do we do with them? Do we just try to say to people, get used to them, remember them? Or do we, <laughs> do we teach somehow in a lexical fashion of, of here's a chunk of language and just remember that chunk of language? Well, none of this works with people who, who are dyslexic, by the way. None of that works because you're relying on working memory again. So one of the things that we can do is we can take our time over it. We can say, I mean, let's take a, a, a very simple example. Um, let's take um, over. That's mm -hmm. the first example that comes to mind. Uh, and what, what we can do is we can explore. So again, use cards or, or, or sticky notes or something and explore, okay, which songs, which films, which books, which sayings do we know that use over? Um, I used to love her, but it's all over now. The Rolling Stones, you know, or somewhere mm -hmm. over the rainbow or, 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 or whatever. And on each card, write down uh, this phrase that uses the word over and then start to arrange them and think, okay, how do they fit together? What are the relationships between these things? How many categories are there? And when people are creating their own categories like this, you're not putting stress on working memory. Mm. What we're doing is we're, 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 we're doing what's strong with them. We're, we're, mm. we're saying, okay, so we know that in general, although not all the time, in general, dyslexic people are very good at creating connections between things and seeing things and seeing patterns. So let's ask them to make patterns. And by the way, this doesn't hurt non-dyslexics either. Yeah. So, so these little ways of, of, of doing things tend to reduce the stress on the things that don't work efficiently, if we can say it like that.
yeah. and they, they, they place more emphasis on the things that work very efficiently. This is fabulously helpful. Thank you. Um, I have a, just a question. I'm curious, though. I mean, dyslexia, we hear it. We talk about letters and inversing letters. But can you be dyslexic without that particular? Without reversing ability? letters, 100%. Can you be a good reader? All really? kids reverse letters um, when they're when they're young and growing up, so it's not necessarily a sign of dyslexia. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of um, a lot of people say it's not dyslexia anyway; it's dysgraphia. I'm not so so convinced because one of the things I was listening to somebody um, doing a podcast on the BBC yesterday about um, rhythm and stress in language and how 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 dyslexics find difficulty processing rhythm and stress which is, we, we're fairly certain about this, mm -hmm. um, and that it's not about letters. And, and so the, there, is dis, there is debate about where mm. the letter reversal fits in to the dyslexia picture. Um, mm. I generally don't reverse letters. Um, I'll miss them out when I'm writing, um, yeah. or I'll, I'll add letters that shouldn't be there. Uh, a lot of dyslexics do this. Um, mm. I'll, um, I'll put them in the wrong place. A lot mm -hmm. of dyslexics do that. Um, I'll squash two words together that shouldn't be squashed together, or I'll split one word apart that shouldn't be split apart. A lot of dyslexics do that. But letter reversals, you don't have to, there is no one thing um, which, is, which lies at the heart of dyslexia, that if you don't have this about you, then you're not mm -hmm. dyslexic. Um, here's a, a great example. The number of the number of national dyslexia organizations who specifically describe dyslexia as a phonological processing deficit is quite astounding. Um, I'm guessing most of your listeners understand phonological processing, but, but for those who don't, mm -hmm. essentially when, when, you, when you read words, you hear them in your head. Right. And when you, when you see a letter, you hear it in your head. And that's phonological processing. The ability to, tr to, to transcribe, or not, that's the wrong word, the ability to, to, to translate the, the, the squiggles on a piece of paper into, into sounds in your head is okay. phonological processing. And the majority of national dyslexia associations specifically describe dyslexia as a phonological processing deficit. And not all dyslexics have got phonological processing deficits. And so what happens to them? Yeah. Um, it's about 70%, actually. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's a big difference. That's it is. It's a huge difference because you've got 30%. If you think of it, 30%. If someone said, okay, you've got a 30% chance of losing your leg, you'd go, what? Yeah. You wouldn't like that. That's big numbers. Right. Right. <laughs> so right. You've got a 30% chance, depending on the figures you read, of, of, of finding dyslexic people who don't have phonological processing deficit they will manifest dyslexia slightly different. What dyslexia is, and for, when people listen to, to, to me saying this, that the question naturally comes up, so, so is dyslexia a thing? What is it? How can you describe mm. it? And I think one of the great ways of describing it is that um, we, we think of it as a family, uh, and, and within a family, there are different relationships. Um, and you can almost plot it as, as a, a, a scatter diagram where you see dots all over the place and there are clumps of dots and these clumps of dots relate to each other and overlap each other. Mm. And we look at dyslexia as, as these relations of, of, of positives and negatives, these relations of differences, essentially. Mm. Um, and this then provides all sorts of problems 
um, and, and I'm talking from more of a sort of an academic perspective here rather than a teacher perspective, so forgive me, but one of the problems that this, this produces is that just like with the autism spectrum, when people talk about this, we tend to talk about it in what you might think of as unscientific ways. Okay. And so if you look mm -hmm. at, a, at, a, at a drawing of the autism spectrum, this wheel with, with sort of um, trivial pursuit pieces of pies mm -hmm. in the middle of it, and one of them says um, social interaction, and another one mm -hmm. says um, um, memory, and another one says, uh, you know, um, I don't know, sensitivity to sound or whatever. Not one of these things is a scientifically measurable um, thing. It's not like the big five psychological tests or anything. They're, they're things mm -hmm. that we lay people have come up with. And therefore, it becomes a little bit difficult to quantify them. Right. Right. Wow, this has been so helpful just to unpack a little really what is dyslexia in general because it isn't necessarily what we think it is no it's, it's, it's broader it's not and, and one of the big things that we need to remember is that when we ask the question what is dyslexia we're not asking what you might think of as a, of a as an objective dispassionate um disinterested question we're asking a question to people and these people have their own contexts and their aims and purposes so, for instance, an English language teacher will think of dyslexia in one way, but a, a doctor in France will think of dyslexia in another way. A dyslexic okay. child will think of dyslexia in a different way. Now, are they all correct? Yes. And yet these descriptions will not always be compatible. And yeah. so we have to understand that the, the descriptions we give of dyslexia are relative to our own aims and purposes. And that everybody has slightly different aims and purposes. And this hunt for one, if you like, irreducible definition that you can boil down into like a, a lump of dyslexia, as it were, it, 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 it's the wrong way of doing it conceptually. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and so if you say to somebody, you know, let's go back to the idea of being in love. If you say to your, to your husband or your wife or your, your partner, you love me. And they say, yes, I do. And you say, OK, tell me what that is. They go, ah, wow. Um, okay, so it, when I'm talking to you, I describe it like this, you know. But if they were then, um, if they were then trying to justify themselves after they they'd slain you accidentally, and they were trying to justify themselves to the courtrooms, they describe it slightly differently. And 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 so whenever we describe those things that are important, we always describe them relative to the people we're talking to and relative to the to the reasons for for describing them. Now, mm -hmm. if we were trying to, to take everybody's different descriptions and, and, and describe dyslexia using everybody's descriptions, it would be an unending, um, an unending explanation of dyslexia. So we have to be very fallibilistic about it. We have to realize that actually, when I talk about dyslexia, I'm talking about it from my perspective to somebody who I think wants to hear this or wants to hear that. So yeah. I, won't, I won't go into a, a, a training room full of teachers and say, okay, so, and, and start talking about um, Bocca's region in the brain or whatever, because it's, it's right. just not relevant. Yeah, always boils down to what's in it for me. I hate the, the expression in a way, yeah, but people, yeah. <laughs> this is how I really, when you communicate with people, you remember, this is what they want to know. And yeah. so this brings us back to a bit of the, the empathy and the inclusivity. So as we as trainers, want, how do we approach, you know, we were talking about inclusivity before, People want to just be treated like anyone else. Um, what, what are your thoughts on kind of 
how to bring that into a training room with neurodivergent want to be treated like anybody else and and yeah. loved yeah it's very easy to be treated like everybody else and not loved and, and so i think mm. we all want to be loved and we all want to feel safe to feel um, safe yeah I, I, that's huge as i say i think that um I think just a culture of openness. Mm. I think just a culture of openness. And and here's here's something. I know somebody who works for a very large charity in uh, in England. Um, I'll, I'll give them a shout out. Actually, they're very very good indeed. The Alzheimer's Society, very good. Um, if you hadn't thought about Alzheimer's for a while, think about Alzheimer's. It's a really important thing to think about. And uh, mm. and her manager has, is very open about her mental health problems. Now, her manager being very open about her mental health problems allows everybody else to be open about mm -hmm. themselves. And it's this sort of, this is where leadership comes in, I suppose. Yeah. Um, this is where we're sort of going first and saying, like, okay, he, here's me. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and being open about ourselves. And, and that's a really important thing to do um, because it, it allows other people to feel safe and it allows other people to realize that we all get things wrong and we all have problems and we all, we all have difficulties. So yeah. I, I would start with um, even something like the Johari window, which is a bit of fun um, mm -hmm. and, and a very useful little activity to find out what it is that, that other people don't know about you and what it is that you don't know about yourself as well. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and so, yeah, these little sort of, I know it sounds very easy, but it, it is, it's getting to know each other. Yeah. So building, taking a little more time to create the safety in your session, allowing for those things that may sound like chat, you know, but they're actually important in developing trust between trainer and trainee and co-trainees. And Absolutely. And noticing as well, because here's something, if, if we teach, um, if we teach people as though as though there is no dyslexia going on, like my teacher does, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm not complaining because I'm, I'm also quite able to, 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 to control some of the learning myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll tell her specifically, look, I want to do this, I don't want to do that. And I, I'm, quite, I'm quite open about this. But in a class, it, it's, it's, it's often difficult. We may notice that some people learn more than others and some people learn faster than others. Now, Again, here's something else a little bit boring and technical, but the, um, the idea of the Matthew effect, um, which is uh, some the, it's a phenomenon where essentially the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So if you learn, let's say five units of knowledge per lesson and somebody else learns four units of knowledge per lesson, it doesn't take long before, before one person's units of knowledge, as it were, far outweigh the other person's units of knowledge. Mm -hmm. and, and we want to try to avoid that. We want to try to keep everybody's units of knowledge as, as, as similar as possible. Because if we don't, then we create the learned helplessness again. Mm. So it, it, it's a psychological thing. We, we, create, we create an environment where people think that they're failing. And that's, mm -hmm. that's the worst kind of environment. So how do we do that? Let's say in an adult learning situation, we kind of keep We, we observe, yeah, we observe. We put people into... Uh, into uh, now, I'm very wary about... Um, I was going to say something and then and then talk a little bit at length about it. I won't talk talk at length, but let's just say I'm very wary about um, learning mentors. So one person in a class mentoring somebody else. One of the reasons I'm wary about that is we don't know how good a mentor they are or whether they even want to be a mentor. Mm. 
Mm. And, and we just assume as teachers, okay, we'll, we'll have this person mentoring that person. This person's good. She'll mentor that person. We, we don't know whether that's an appropriate thing to do. And right. so um, it, it, it's about opening ourselves up to, to where people have got touch points and, and noticing where people are a little bit slower than others. Uh, mm -hmm. Because eventually they'll get it. Eventually yeah. they'll get it. Um, and uh, as long as we, we, if, and there's that classic quotation um, by um, somebody whose name I've forgotten, but everybody knows, knows, knows what it is. That, uh, and it's about children. And I know that we're not dealing with teaching children here, but the same thing applies. If you, if you tell a child a thousand times and he still doesn't, and, and he still hasn't got it, mm -hmm. It's not the child that's a bad learner. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. Well, Martin, this has been so helpful. I love the broader perspective you brought to this. It helps me understand better what this is all about. And I hope our trainers and listeners will really feel a little more empowered. And what I also love about what you put out in the world are your Dyslexia, Dyslexia Bites videos because they tend to be very technical. They're little short videos where you really do get specifics about how to approach things. If you want yeah. to see please, please look at, at YouTube forward slash Dyslexia Bytes. And in a, a couple of weeks time, I'll be releasing mm -hmm. two videos, one which mm -hmm. I'm going to call a 30 second teaching tip. So I've got a series of 30 second teaching tips mm -hmm. um, on morphology and then a slightly longer one for about of about 16 minutes um, about here's an example of teaching morphology in, in a class. Um, so yeah, if you want, specific techniques about morphology. I'll be doing something about what we call orthographic mapping. Although when you're teaching adults, that's probably quite a, a way in the past. It's a bit late for orthographic mapping. But I'll be releasing videos on morphology and orthographic mapping. I've released videos on phonological awareness. Um, I, I'll be releasing videos on, on um, um, mental health issues and dyslexia. So, so yeah, I, I release videos on, on all sorts of things that can affect the learning environment. Fantastic. Fantastic. It's a great resource. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? The best way? Um, at the moment, I'm having my website redone, but I think that okay. the contacts page on the website is still open. Um, it's, it's an awful contacts page. It was made by somebody years ago and I, I could never change it. And there's some <laughs> stock photo of a, of, a, of, a, of a beautiful, smiling secretary with a, with a telephone. <laughs> Who's she? So... I don't know her. <laughs> If you find dyslexia bites, that's dyslexia and then B Y T E S, one word, dyslexiabytes.org, and then go to contacts. You can get me there. You can also um, find me on LinkedIn. And that's, um, that's, and please do find me on LinkedIn because I post a lot of content and, and dyslexia related sort of tidbits. Yeah, perfect. And we love the we love the short format. It really is helpful and to the point. So thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for your insights. We really, really appreciate it. So oh, thank you. it's genuinely it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us in the business class ESL break room, the podcast designed to bring business English trainers, useful ideas, inspiration and conversation that motivates Follow us on Instagram at business underscore class underscore language and subscribe to the ESL Breakroom playlist on Spotify, Deezer, or Apple Music for new episodes. See you next time.